So James chapter 4. Last week we learned where conflicts come from. Conflicts and quarreling, arguing and fighting come from our members that are within us. They wage war on us. And of course that's called selfishness. And that's worldly. Today we're going to look at how we can resolve these conflicts according to God's word. Because that's our goal. Not that we're perfect. We do have conflicts. We do have misunderstandings. We, we do have disagreements. That's not the problem. It's how we handle them. And we want to handle it in a way that will bring glory to God. Amen? I'm going to read you a quick little story here. It says, An Englishman was seated on a train between two ladies arguing about the window. One claimed that she would die of heat stroke if it stayed closed. The other said she would expire of pneumonia if it was opened. The ladies called the conductor who didn't know how to resolve the conflict. Finally, a gentleman stood up and spoke up and said, First, open the window. That will kill the one. And then close it, and that will kill the other. Then we will have peace. That's one way we can resolve conflicts, right? Just kill them both. But that would not uh, bring honor and glory to God, would it? So if you would stand this morning's reading of God's Word, we're going to read from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And this morning we're going to cover verses 4 through 10. We've got a lot to cover. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God reads as follows. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. This is the ending of God's word. You may be seated. Douglas Moo in his commentary said about James chapter 4 verses 4 through 10 that this is the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repent that we find anywhere in the New Testament. The call to repentance in verses 4 through 10 is in, is, will relate to the selfishness and the divisiveness that he spoke about in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 that we looked at last week. He's calling them to repent and come back to God because they're acting worldly. Remember, the, the whole context of this chapter is warning against worldliness, which can happen to Christians. We can get lured back into the world, and James is warning us here in these writings. So he's calling them back to repentance. 
Now, James draws the line right away. In verse 4, it's like a splash of ice-cold water in the face. He wants to awaken their people to their spiritual condition. And he opens up verse 4 by saying this, You adulterous people. That is a slap in the face to them. But again, it's out of love. Remember we talked about last week. Don't listen to how James says it. Just listen to what he says. Because he's an in-your-face type of guy. James draws a line right away after calling some of his readers in chapters 1 brothers, actually even called them beloved brothers. He now addresses them as adulterous people. I'm thankful, by the way, for preachers like this that will just speak the truth. Speak it in love, but speak the truth. Tell it like it is, what the scriptures mean, what God is meaning here. This is what James is doing. Now, the word adulterous, the noun in the feminine, actually means adulteresses. He's not accusing his female readers of having adulterous relationships here, but what he's talking about in general is that the church as a whole is in an adulterous relationship with the world and has left their marriage with God. That's what he means by calling them adulterous people. He says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? By the way, do you know that? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So he basically says here, take your pick. Make your choice. Are you going to be married to God or are you going to be married to the world? Can you imagine a couple that just got married and the husband says to his wife, you know, honey, I love you, but um, I'm going to go out with my old girlfriend tonight. I want to spend some time with her. You know, I want to keep in touch with her life too. I mean, can you, can you imagine that? And we laugh about this, but this is what's happening here. That marriage wouldn't last for long, and there would be a great deal of trouble in that marriage when that husband says, I want to spend time with my old girlfriend. Why? Because I'm devoted to you, right? The same way as Christ as our Savior, that when we've been taken out of the world and we've been married to Christ, it's like telling him, I also want to love the world also. I kind of want to have the best. He doesn't tolerate that. Neither would a husband or a wife in the natural relationship. When you get married, your vows are to forsake all others and be devotedly and to be devoted exclusively to your spouse. I am forsaking everything else and I am devoting myself to you until death do us part. The same thing with Christ. I am devoted to you. My affection and everything is for you. John MacArthur says that you can no more spiritually have two gods than you can legally have two spouses. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? You either serve God or you serve what? Mammon. You make your choice, but you cannot serve both. It's not going to happen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at this scripture, beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? All questions. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, because of that, what we just said, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing and then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And that's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians because Corinthians were very worldly people. Their love was divided between God and the world, and Paul says that's not going to work. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? What does it mean when, when James says here to be a friend of the world? First of all, the word, the word world is the Greek word cosmos. Not talking about the world that we live in. He's talking about the systems of evil that is controlled by Satan. And James is especially thinking of the pleasures that lure men's hearts away from God. That's his addressing right here. So friendship with the world means living to please yourself apart from God rather than living to find pleasure in God himself. It's trying to find pleasures in the things of the world instead of trying to find pleasure in God himself. It's like you finding pleasure in the creation rather than the creator. And a Christian doesn't do that. I want you to listen to John Piper's comment on this verse, and this is very, very powerful. John Piper says, and I quote, If we seek from the world the pleasures that we should seek in God, we are unfaithful to our marriage vows. And what's worse, when we go to our heavenly husband and actually pray for the resources which which to commit adultery with the world, it is a very wicked thing which is what they were doing in verses 1 through 3. When you pray, you ask wrongly so you can spend it on yourselves and on your pleasures. You're coming to your heavenly husband to ask for things that you can go and have an affair with the world with. MacArthur said, It is as though we would ask our husband for money to hire male prostitutes to provide the pleasure we don't find in him. That's how serious this is. This is how serious the the world is. And as Mark read this morning from Jeremiah chapter 3, there are some very strong words in there. It's scripture. It's the Bible. And that's how God looked at it. You're being unfaithful. Joseph Allen, who's best known for his book, An Alarm to the Unconverted, said this, and I quote, There is no surer evidence of an unconverted state than to have the things of the world uppermost in our aim, love and estimation. So what he says here is that if that's your aim for the things of the world and the pleasures of the world, it's most likely that you are unconverted even though you call yourself a Christian and are sitting in the church. This is an awakening for these people to understand their spiritual condition and their unfaithfulness that they've left their creator for the world. And James is now calling them back. And you could tell that they're being worldly because they're constantly having quarrels and fightings among them in the church. To be a friend of the world while claiming to be a Christian is the height of self-deceiving folly. And if you remember James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, if anyone thinks his religious, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans, and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Separate yourself from the world, from the evil ways of Satan. 
So James has accused his readers of spiritual unfaithfulness now. And if they are not willing to accept that, he now asks them in verse 5 that what they think about the Old Testament passages that deals with God's jealous longings for his people. He said, if you're unwilling to accept this, what about all the Old Testament passages that talk about God's jealousies? He says in verse 5, look at this. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, there is not a, a, a scripture in the Old Testament that actually says this. James is referring to more than one uh, scriptures in the Old Testament, and there's lots of them, that talk about God's jealousy for his people. Is God a jealous God? Let's let Scripture tell us, okay? Let's let, let's let uh, Scripture speak to us. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning of verse 23. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Exodus chapter 20, beginning of verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to, down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And like I said, there are many throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. I'll read you one more. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion. With great jealousy, I am jealous for her with great wrath. So you could see that God is jealous for his people. And when his people willfully leave him and go into the world and have an affair with the world, God is jealous and wrathful. But as Mark read this morning in Jeremiah chapter 3, you could hear, return to me. Return to me, and I will not be angry forever. I will forgive you, but return to me. See, when we sin, he is pained. He's pained when we sin. God doesn't take sin lightly. It's breaking God's law. That's why we need to be zealous and repent, because we know that our sin not only grieves us, but it grieves our Father's hearts. And that's why we're grieving most of all, because it's grieving him. It's like when you hurt your, your natural mother or father, you're grieved. You're, you're, you feel bad about that. His jealousy is passionate. For the idea in the Greek is that he longs or yearns for us with an intense jealousy. You're mine. You are mine. You belong to me and no one else. God will tolerate no rival. When a believer behaves in a worldly manner, then they demonstrate that their allegiance is to the world rather to God. And by the way, church, that is an unbeliever. When your allegiance is to the world and not to God, though you may sit in the pews and sit in church and read a Bible, so like that, that is a mark of an unbeliever. When your desires are nothing and your affections are all for the things of the world and you find no pleasure in God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John told the church, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Kent Hughes wrote, to realize that this awesomely holy God who transcends the universe and is wholly other and self-contained is at the same time personally and passionately and lovingly jealous for our affection. This realization ought to stop any of our affairs with the world and cause us to prostrate our souls adoringly before him. To come back and mourn and weep that we have done that and come back to our marriage vows and to the one we are married to, which is God, because he jealousy yearns for our affection. And yet we go out into the world and look for that. So now, he's, 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 ta- he's still talking about in verses 1 through 3 about quarrels and, and, and fights and where they come from. And they're coming from, they're, they're worldly. They're in the world. They've been drawn from the world, the lures, and they're, they're inside. And they're having, and they're, the passions are, are fighting amongst them, and they're quarreling. But he says here in verse 6, I want you to look at this. But he gives more grace. Amen. And that second song we sung this morning there, that grace song, whatever it was, man, that just brought tears to my eyes because... I've witnessed it. I've seen the grace of God in my life in difficult situations and hardships and pains and stuff like that, but I'm still here. And it's not because of anything I've done. I've realized that it's been God's grace the whole time. He gives us grace after grace, and he gives us, as James says here, he gives us even more grace. What is this grace? He says, this grace looks back to God's demand for loyalty in verses 4 and 5. You, you, you want to live for the world, your desires are for the world, and I'm demanding loyalty for me. I want you to come back for me. And because I'm demanding that, I am now going to give you more grace to be able to do that. By the way, without God's grace, you can't even breathe. You can't do anything. You can't even live and move and have your being. How dependent are we on God but yet we still go out into the world and try to find pleasures in that, and we end up empty-handed. He gives us grace and more grace to help us resist the pleasures of this world and to remain loyal to him. That's what it means by giving us more grace. St. Augustine said that God gives what he demands. If God has demanded loyalty for him and not for the world, he is going to give you grace to be able to do that. You can't say, I don't know how, I, I, I can't do this, I'm not strong enough. No, he does give you grace, and he gives you more grace for any situation you will ever find yourself in. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful it is, he will give you grace, and he will sustain you through that. He has promised it in his word. However, he only gives more grace to the humble. Look at verse 6 again. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The humble ones are the ones who are willing, are willing to submit to God's desire for them rather than proudly insisting on their own desires for worldly pleasures. These are the people that know their need for a Savior and need for grace. If you don't find yourself praying and asking God for grace to handle another day, something's wrong. If you're trying to do this on your own, thinking that you can do this on your own, you're greatly mistaken. 
You can't do anything without God's grace. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Somebody who understands that is dependent upon God for everything. And you go to him in humble submission and ask and request God for what you need for that moment. Not to ask him for something that you could take and now go spend it on your own pleasures. That, according to James chapter 1, verse 3, is asking wrongly and let that, non, let that man expect he's not going to receive anything because he won't, because you're proud. God will give grace and more grace to the people who are in need of it. So now, in verses 7 through 10, He gives us 10 imperative verbs, and that means a command to do this now. Do not hesitate, but to do this right now. He gives us 10 of them, and we're going to go through them, but I'm going to specify, I'm going to outline three of them in your your bulletin here. Submit to God, verse 7. Draw near to God, verse 8, and humble yourselves before God in verse 10. He's telling them to come, James is telling them to come back to God, to repent confess their unfaithfulness with the world to God, and now come back. And he's going to tell us how to do this. So how do we resolve conflicts? How do we resolve uh, worldly quarrels and stuff like that? How do we resolve these members that are waging war inside of us? James is going to give us the answer. Number one, verse seven, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves to God. Submission is not obedience, by the way. Submission is the surrender of one's will, and in doing that, it will lead to obedience. It is is to place ourselves under his lordship. That's what it means to submit. God calls us to submit to the governing authorities. He calls women to submit to their husbands. It's to place themselves under the authority that God has planned for them. So James says here that you are to submit your will to the will of God. To place yourself under his will. Why? Well, according to the scripture right here, because only the humble receive the grace of God. And you need the grace of God. You you, you need it. Every day, every second of your life, you need the grace of God. And he only gives that to the humble. Pride, it fights against our spirits to submit to God. It wars with us. Don't do that. You'll be weak. Don't do that. And it fights. It wars with us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight. Remember that verse? Fight the good fight, Timothy. That is a command to make this your continual practice. You have to fight this thing. You have to fight the flesh. You have to fight the pride that is telling you not to submit to God and do things your own way. You don't need prayer. You don't need accountability. You don't need other people. You don't need to come to church. Just do it yourself. The world, the flesh, and the devil will continually oppose our walk of grace to submit to God. And you have to fight those three with all your heart and soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil are at war within you your selfishness, and you must take that will and submit it under the lordship of Jesus Christ and do his will. 
Martin Ansley eloquently phased it by this. He said, the primary qualification demanded in the reader of the Bible is not scholarship, but surrender. Not expert knowledge, but willingness to be led by the Spirit of God. I don't know who the writer was, but he said, if you claim to have the right theology, but do not have submission to God or love for your neighbor, then you have the wrong theology. It's kind of like 1 Corinthians 13. If you claim to have all prophecy and all knowledge of Scripture and know everything that can ever happen, but you do not have love, you are nothing. You see, the reason why we come to church and sit under the teaching of the Word is not so that we can win debates and quarrel with people who don't believe like we believe. The reason we study theology and Scripture is so that we can be Christ-like and live like Christ did. That's the goal of studying scripture. To be Christ-like. This is what submission looks like. Look at Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus speaking here. We want to be like him, right? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but what? Your will be done. So it's taking your desires, your pleasures, your selfishness, your quarreling, your conflicts, your relationships, whatever's going on there, and placing your will under the lordship of Jesus Christ and doing what his will is and not my will. That's how you solve conflicts. And when you submit to the will of Jesus Christ, those quarrels and fightings and the worlds go away. Richard Baxter wrote these last words. His last words were, Lord, what thou will, where thou will, and when thou will. Whatever your will is, when it is, where it is, whatever that is, I want it. Your will be done and not mine. That's what it means to submit yourself to God. Okay? All right. Then he says right here, he says this, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. That tells me no matter how powerful Satan is, God's grace, which he gives us more of, can resist Satan's temptations and onslaughts, whatever it might be. Whatever the conflict might be, whatever the arrows that he's shooting at you. Yeah, he's powerful, but God's grace is more powerful. And that grace will help you submit to God and resist the devil and resist the temptation to speak those harsh words. Resist the arguing, resist the fighting by submitting your will to God's. That's how you do it. And you resist him. And when you resist him, he will flee from you. So if you want the devil to flee from your life and from your situation and your conflicts, submit to God. That's how James tells us it works. Then he says in verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The command to draw near implies that their ungodly behavior in James 1 through 3 and the worldliness in in verse 4 has put a distance between the readers and God. And James is calling for his readers to pursue intimacy now with God. The worldliness has put a, 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 a divided between you and God. Now, therefore, draw near to him. Most commentators believe that this is intimate prayer. 
This was communion with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stand out in the street corners and pray so that people can see them, so that when they do and they think they're really holy and religious, they've gotten their reward. People think they're religious. But Jesus said what? When you pray, go into your closet. When's the last time you were in your closet? Wherever that might be. When's the last time you have been in a private place with God nothing else, and communed with him and had intimate conversation with your Lord, with the one you're married to. When was the last time? No wonder we have conflicts and quarrels and the things of the world are bombarding us. That intimate time of prayer helps us for those times. You cannot neglect that church Yes, you have to work. Yes, you have the things of the world, but you must have your quiet time with God in the prayer closet. You must go to it. You're just not going to appear there. It's an act of your will. Go to it. When you find the stresses of the world, when you, st- when you find all this stuff that's happening, and you start seeing that there's conflict and there's anger in your heart, and you're saying mean and, and abusive words to people, that's evidence you need to go in your prayer closet and commune and say, God, fill me. I'm empty. I'm empty. Help me. He tells us to draw near. Charles Spurgeon says this. Hear this command and practice it. Get near to God in Christ Jesus and you shall soon find him come to your help in every hour of need. Like James says earlier, the reason you do not have is why? Because you do not ask. You just don't even ask. You don't have time for prayer. You're just consumed in the world. You just consume with other things and you have no time to even ask God, Lord, what's going on with me? What's going on with this relationship? Why is this happening? What did I give place to? It's communing. And oh, by the way, he loves that. He desires that for us. Intimacy with him. Come, draw near to me, says the Lord. And that's what James tells the church and he tells us here to do. Draw near means to approach. It means to get closer to. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you understand that passage right there? Let me read it again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you have any trouble, anything that's going on, draw near to him and enter his presence with boldness and he will give you help. He will tell you what to do. He will ease your soul. Come unto me, all you who are weary, I'll give you rest. But you've got to come. You've got to go. It's not going to happen any other way. Draw draw near to him. The greater our nearness to God, the less we are affected by the attractions and distractions of the earth. Jesus constantly withdrew himself from the pressures of life and the apostles and everything else and constantly went away by himself. Why? To commune. To be filled But he did this as an example that we should follow. Are we doing this?
If you have conflicts, if you have quarrels, if you're at odds with people, whatever the situation may be, go to your prayer closet. Ask God for help, and in the time of need, he will give you more grace, and he will quiet your soul, and he will give you the strength to continue on. And that, my friends, is supposed to be a continual practice, nonstop, continually doing that. James here is probably saying, he's probably referring to Hosea 12.6 when he says to draw near. Hosea 12.6 says, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Maybe you're in a place where you have to wait on God to do something, to open a door, to move in another person's life, whatever the, the thing might be. But you wait patiently for him trusting in him that he's going to do this. So he says, so you, by the help of your God, return. And that's God's grace right there. God's grace gives you that to return to him. We need more grace. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. For what great, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? You ever, you ever been in a situation where God feels billions of miles away? You pray, you just, you just feel so far away. I believe that's the time where he's the most closest to us. That's where faith comes in, church. That's where faith comes in. You're crying out to God. You're pouring your heart out to him, and he hears you. Right when you pray, when you humble yourself, he's giving you grace. He's sustaining you. He might not answer the question like that. You still might have more fire to go through, but it's all for a purpose. Right? So you draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's like the, the, the prodigal son who finally came to his understanding what I've done was wrong and I've sinned and therefore I'm going to go back to the father. And when the father was waiting for the son, he saw the son afar, what did he do? He ran to him. That's our father. That's our very help in time of need right there available to us if you would just come and ask. He will give it to you. If you humble yourself, humility will give you grace. And then he says this in verse, um, verse eight here, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. These are strong words right here. These are really, really strong words. But again, it's to shaken them to the reality of where they're at spiritually. And they're worldly. Psalms 24, we know this pretty well. Verse 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? But he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's who can stand in the presence of God. One who has clean hands and a pure heart. So James tells them, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleansing your hand has to do with external behaviors. Purify your heart is internal behaviors that lead to outward behaviors. Cleanse yourself. Repent. Be holy. 
Their eager quest for pleasure had resulted in sins of the heart and hands, so James calls them sinners because of their worldly involvement. You're sinners. That's what you are. You're in the world, and you can tell your heart and your hands are in it, and you're dirty and you're filthy and you're sinners. So therefore, cleanse yourself and purify your hearts and return to God. Verse 9. B. Matter of fact, I'm going to read this in the Amplified Version. I think I have it up here. Listen to this in the Amplified Version. This really brings it out. As you draw near to God, be deeply penitent and grieve. Even weep over your disloyalty. Let your laughter be turned to grief and your mirth to dejection and heartfelt shame for your sins. That, my friend, right there is true repentance. That is somebody who sees their wretchedness, that they're miserable, poor, blind, wretched, and naked. And they're penitent. They're, they're, they're grieving. Their souls are crushed. And they're coming back to God in this manner. This is true mourning for sin. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. These so-called Christians were laughing when they should have been weeping. They were laughing because they were having a good time in the world when in fact they should have been weeping over their sin and unfaithfulness to their partner. The laughing indicates the sickness of their souls, which by the way, only tears can cure. A believer, listen to this, a believer cannot laugh at sin. If you are redeemed, if you have been born again, you cannot laugh at sin. Rather, you mourn over it. You weep over it. You see it as God sees it, detestable. Jesus said in Luke 6.25, he said this, and I quote, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe. Pretty powerful word right there. Woe to you who laugh now. You will mourn and you will weep. James tells them, because of the worldliness, you shouldn't be laughing at this. That's sick. You should be weeping your joy should be turned into gloom. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, he convicts you of sin, right? And he brings repentance to us and tears to where we've grieved our father and we've sinned and we recognize it. And by God, by God's grace, we can do that. And he will give us more grace to come back to him. Do you truly mourn over your sin? Do you truly weep? Does it hurt you? Does it pain you? I hope it does. That's godly. Because like I said, we can be lured into the world. Last one, verse 10. He tells us to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will exalt us. Be made low so that you can be made high. This is a foundational biblical principle. That's how the the kingdom is. You give to get. 
You die to live. You go low to get high. One writer said, If you want to see the height of the hill of God's eternal love, you must go down into the valley of humility. G. Campbell Morgan said, All God's thrones are reached by going downstairs. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Church, we should not be quarreling. We should not be fighting. We should not be spreading gossip. We should not be doing any of that stuff. That's selfishness. That's worldliness. And James here calls us to repent and come back. Submit yourself to God. Draw near to God. And now humble yourselves before God. The idea here is not to be humbled, but allow yourself to be humbled or placed in a lower position. That's what a Christian does. The Christian gives preference to one another, gives preference to the other person. It accepts humility. This is a genuine realization of complete unworthiness and lostness because of sin. To humble ourselves before the Lord means to recognize our own spiritual poverty and to acknowledge our desperate need of God's help and to submit to his will for our lives and for his church. That's what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord. You want to to see what it looks like in Scripture? Look at Luke chapter 18. You all know this one. Beginning in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Now that's the opposite of humility right there. I thank you that I'm not like them. I thank you that we're not like other churches. Extortioners unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off He was even ashamed to come close. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I can't even look. I just want you to be merciful to me, God. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve wrath and hell but I'm asking that you be merciful to me. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You go lie, you go low, God will get you high. That's how it works. The gravity of grace will always be channeled The gravity of grace will always channel the rivers of divine favor to the lowly and to those who submit themselves to God, whose soul's momentum is away from the devil and towards God, who purify their inner and outer lives, who mourn over their sins, and fifth, who obey the final summary command in verse 10, which is to humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Amen. Verse 6, back in verse uh, 6, he says, God opposes the proud. I believe the proud here are unbelievers, people who think that they can do it on their own, people who think that they have no sin, like we read earlier in in 1 John chapter 1. 
I don't have need of a savior. I'm a good person. Yeah, I make mistakes, but I'm all right. I don't need help. I don't need church. I don't need a savior. In verse 6, it says that God opposes the proud. That word oppose means to place oneself in battle against an enemy. That's what that means. If you are not in Christ, God opposes you. Because you're proud and you don't see your wretchedness and you don't think that you need a savior. Matter of fact, John 8, 24, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So how do you not act proud? And how do you act humbly? James gave us a list right there, verses 7 through 10. Let me just read them again for you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If you do that this morning, you will be saved. But if you're proud and have no need of a Savior, God will oppose you. And like John 8 says, you will die in your sin. My prayer for you this morning, if there's anyone here, that you would humble yourself, submit to God, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for helping us this morning through James, his writings, of course, inspired by you, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from the world. I pray that you would have our affections for the world disappear, that we would not desire anything in this world. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to that everything we need and want and desire is found in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for the church in general that have gone astray and have committed adultery with the world and have left you. Father, I ask that you would forgive us. Please forgive us, God, and be merciful and gracious to us. Help us to submit to you, to submit to your will. Help us to draw near to you, God, and have intimacy with you. For as we do that, the pleasures of the world and the devil will flee and disappear. And God, most of all, help us to humble ourselves before you. For as we do, you've promised to exalt us. Lord, why shouldn't we, why wouldn't we be humble? Lord, let us never ever think that we have done this ourselves and fall into that trap. God, we need you so desperately. We can't have any right relationships. We can't do anything without your grace. So I pray this morning for Pacific Hope, for an abundance of grace, God. That we would put into practice what James told us this morning. And of course, the whole theme of the book of James is faith without works is dead. Father, let us not be hearers, but doers. Let us look for opportunities to put this into action. 
I thank you for your grace, that you give more grace. I thank you that for every situation we find ourselves in, there is grace. Father, I pray that we would have a spirit of prayer here, that we would come to you and cry out to you and pray for our church and pray for one another and pray for our pastor, pray for our marriages, pray for our children, pray for the world. You're so good to us, God. Forgive us for ever thinking that we would, could ever do this on our own. Lord, we now submit to you. We draw near to you. We humble ourselves before you. Pray that you would change us into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.